Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. You know, we're continuing and concluding our series called God and Money today with a message entitled The Joy of Giving. So let's turn in our Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 to 11. Imagine for a moment that you were alive in the end of the U.S. Civil War. You're a northerner, but you happen to be living in the South. It's becoming apparent that the South is going to lose, so what would you do? Well, chances are you'd take and trade in all your Confederate money for U.S. currency. You'd keep only that which you need to meet your current needs. All of the rest would soon be useless if you didn't trade it in. See, this is the last of my series on money, and today I want to speak specifically about giving. I want to talk to you about trading in your worldly money because this world and its current power structures are soon going to be defeated and its currency will soon become useless. I want to teach you how to trade it in for the currency that's going to last forever. The text we'll read is part of a larger section of Scripture, and we can't read all of it. I'm talking about 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9, and it speaks about a calling on the Corinthian church to give and to supply the needs of needy Christians, especially those in Jerusalem. That's the background. So let's read the text, 2 Corinthians 9, 6 to 11. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency at all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As is written, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing, and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. Now from this text and from others that are pertinent to the theme raised here, I want to show you four principles related to generosity. As God's money managers, there are four things that God wants us to learn. The first is the simplest, give. Look again, but for now, the first four words in verse 7. Each one must give. Now, some of you are going to say, well, that's not fair. The rest of the verse reads, as he has decided. Well, yeah, yeah, that's true. But also realize that for many of us, we take verse 7 to mean that how we give is entirely up to us. It's no one else's business. Now, I wonder if you've ever read a part of a letter, let's say between two lovers, but you don't know the context. Well, this passage is like that. We are reading part of a discussion, and we need to hear it in context. Paul is encouraging believers to give to the ministry of the saints and then reminding them that the one who sows sparingly reaps sparingly. Furthermore, Paul is telling the Corinthians of the generosity of the churches in Macedonia who gave out of their poverty, and he's urging the Corinthians to be like them, give excessively, And consider the example of Jesus who gave everything. No matter how you interpret verse 7, it hardly means giving is simply a private matter between you and God. Rather, I return to my point. Each one must give. This is expected of all believers. But let's widen our theme. 
The entire New Testament, as you know, proclaims the meaning of the Old Testament in the light of Jesus' coming. So in order to fill out what the New Testament teaches about giving, let's go back and ask, what does the Old Testament teach about giving? Well, the answer to that is that the Old Testament taught a principle that is called the principle of the tithe. In case you don't know, tithing is giving the first 10% of what you have to the Lord. Now, I say that because every once in a while, I'll hear someone saying, you know, I tithed $50 last week. Well, chances are that's not tithing. It may be giving, but not tithing. If it's tithing, it means that you received a $500 check and then you've tithed. Tithing is giving 10% of your income to the Lord. That is the definition of tithing. That principle was taught to the people of Israel in the Old Testament. In fact, just to be clear as to what was taught, let me lay it out. Firstly, tithing was connected with the Old Testament concept of the first fruit. That is, your tithe was the very first thing that you gave and never the last thing that you gave. Secondly, and there are in fact three different tithes in the Old Testament. The first tithe is described in Numbers 18, and it's a tithe given to support the priests and the Levites, as well as the administration of the tabernacle, which of course was your place of worship. Then in Deuteronomy 12, it describes a second tithe, which was given to support the sacred festivals of Israel. And finally, Deuteronomy 14 and 26 describes a third tithe, which was to be given to the orphans and the widows and the poor. But this third tithe was collected only every three years. And so you have a system in the Old Testament, which if you work it out, is about a 23% of your income. But this is key. Most often when the tithe is described, it refers to the first tithe, that is, the giving of 10% of your income to the place of worship. Now, how important did God view this tithe? Well, listen to the words of Malachi 3, 8 to 10. Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me the whole nation. Bring the full tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And by now, notice that this is the first tithe to the place of worship. Let me keep reading. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. See, I want you to notice several things. First of all, you'll notice the term storehouse. This refers to a room in the temple designated for the tithe. Secondly, this is the only passage in the scripture where we are told to put God to the test. I mean, over and over again, we are told not to test God. And Jesus himself, you're going to remember this, in his temptation in the wilderness, had to remind the devil that we are not to put the Lord our God to the test. But this is the only place where we are specifically told to put God to the test and see whether or not he will take care of our financial needs. So let me review. Tithing in the Old Testament was bringing the first 10% of your income before you could spend it into the Lord to be given to the priests and the Levites and the worship in the tabernacle or the temple. It was essentially a worship tithe. Now, I know of no one who argues this. See, where the argument begins is that some say, well, that's an Old Testament law, and we, that is, we New Testament believers, well, we're under grace, and the New Testament teaches us simply to decide between you and God. But as we've already seen, in order to get that meaning out of 2 Corinthians, we would have to take it out of context. So to be clear, 
whatever the New Testament teaches about giving, it certainly does not teach in any place that giving is just an individual matter, and it's up to you to decide. But let's take the next step. What did Jesus teach about giving? Well, in fact, Jesus is very clear. In a dispute with the Pharisees, here's what he said, and I'm reading Matthew 23, verse 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. I hope you heard that. Let me put it again. You tithe down to giving 10% of your garden spices. You're that meticulous in your tithing. But you've neglected weightier matters, justice, mercy. So what should you do? Well, you ought to do justice, mercy, and faithfulness, but in so doing, don't neglect the commitment you have to the tithe. That's what Jesus said. And so from Jesus' perspective, he affirms the necessity of the Old Testament tithe. Are we clear on all this? See, Jesus challenged the Jewish definition of the Sabbath. Jesus pronounced all foods clean and ended the need for Jewish dietary laws in the Old Testament. Jesus died on the cross, becoming the Lamb of God, ending the need for Old Testament sacrifices. But in the only place where Jesus actually spoke about the issue of tithing, he actually affirmed it. You know, it's amazing to me how many teachers will take no notice of this plain teaching of Jesus. And what's more? The New Testament writers went through the Old Testament with a fine-tooth comb and through Jesus proclaimed an end, well, to circumcision, to dietary laws, and to ritual sacrifices. But they never ended the Old Testament command not to commit adultery or the command not to steal or hundreds of other Old Testament teachings. And they never announced an end to the tithe. Now, of course, the temple no longer exists and there's no temple tithe. But the New Testament takes over the Old Testament principles of giving and then applies that in Christ to our giving in the New Covenant era. So what does the New Testament actually teach about what we should actually give? The faithful, accurate teaching of the Bible impacts lives. Krista wrote, I came across Back to the Bible Canada and Dr. John Newfeld a few weeks ago when I was looking for biblical advice on a specific topic. And what a blessing this ministry has been ever since. I've listened to many podcasts, discovered In Doubt, and have recommended both to friends. I appreciate the faithfulness to biblical teachings, the depth of the teachings themselves, deep but explained in a way easy to understand. Back to the Bible is so appreciative to all those who help make the daily Bible teaching program happen. It's not one person, but thousands with a commitment to the importance of teaching God's Word. Your gift, your prayers are critical. So please continue to support the program in your area so that others like Krista might grow closer in their walk with Jesus every day. Call 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. For the first 400 years in the life of the church, tithing was consistently taught to every single new believer. For instance, listen to Augustine of Hippo. He was Bishop of North Africa, and he was one of the greatest teachers in the history of Christianity. He lived in the 300s, and here's what he said. Tithes are required as a matter of debt, and he who has been unwilling to give them has been guilty of robbery. 
Whosoever, therefore, desires to secure a reward for himself, let him render tithes, and out of the nine parts let him seek to give alms. So, in other words, Augustine made a distinction between tithes and alms. Tithes, he taught, were required, and alms were left to you to freely decide. And so for Augustine, the freedom to give that is not under compulsion, as Paul termed it in 2 Corinthians 9, meant the freedom to give out of the remaining 90%. And so the tithe became standard, and the free gifts were always taught after the tithe had been given. It seems likely to me then, since Jesus affirmed the tithe, and since it was explicitly taught for hundreds of years after Christ, and since what the New Testament teaches is always premised on the Old Testament in the light of Christ, it seems right to say that the early church had it right. Tithing is the standard or the starting point of our learning obedience in giving. But is that really what the New Testament teaches? Well, I'm reading 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 and 2. Paul writes, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper. But in 2 Corinthians, Paul is referring to a special offering to be raised for the poor in Jerusalem. He is not there talking about regular giving. But in 1 Corinthians 16, he is now talking about the regular giving that would have gone on in every local church. Notice what Paul is teaching us about giving. He's teaching an approach to giving that resists the emotional appeal and substitutes that for something that is reasonably thought through, that is proportional, and that is regular. Do you see what he's saying? As he may prosper, that is, in proportion to his income. Sounds like the old tithing formula. Now, notice he also speaks of regular giving. He says on the first day of every week, that is, on the day of worship. By the time Paul is writing this, most Gentile Christian churches now worship not on Saturday, but on Sunday. When you gather, you should enter into worship already having decided what you would give. So we might accurately define the New Testament discipline that all believers would have learned would have gone something like this. Giving is to be regular, it is to be consistent, and it is to be proportional to income. And by the way, might I interject a thought here? Vast studies have been done of the number of evangelicals in North America, their average income, and what would happen if we all tithe, that is, did just the minimum. Do you know that if evangelicals just did this one small thing, tithe, we would have enough money to A, end world poverty, B, provide medicine for ending eight of the most common killers in the third world, and C, have enough to evangelize the entire world. There would be more than enough for Bible teaching ministries like this one. We would do something that makes Bill Gates and what Warren Buffett do seem like nothing. It would be so significant that the most hardened secular press in the world would be unable to ignore the grace to the world that comes from those who love Christ. And since God has promised that tithing won't hurt us, since he said, test me in this and see if I won't open the windows of heaven, what I wonder is holding us back. Now, with this long background, we can go back to 2 Corinthians 9. 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9 is about a special situation that has arisen. Jewish believers in Jerusalem are facing a terrible financial crisis, and Paul is calling not for a tithe, 
but for a special free will offering, the same kind of offerings that were held in the Old Testament in which a person might choose to give apart from or over on top of his regular giving. So here's Paul's appeal. When it comes to giving, which technically is done after the tithe, there's a special appeal, and here's what he says. We ought to live and give lavishly and generously. Let me explain three kinds of giving. First, we might give less than our ability. Now, just to be clear, many of us can't understand this because we live in a culture that doesn't understand it. This year, as Canadians fill out their tax returns, 75% of all Canadians will fill out their charitable donation of their tax forms and write down the number zero. Among the richest people in world history, we will say, let the rest take care of themselves. I am not my brother's keeper. Another 12.5% of Canadians will write down $220 or less. The remaining 12.5% will give more than $220. Now, if you listen to this culture and assume that this practice is normal, you're out of touch with the heart of God. Now, the second kind of giving, it's giving according to our ability. Listen, even if you disagree with me on the issue of tithing, then at least agree that the Bible calls us to give proportionally to income. Now, the third kind of giving is to give beyond our ability. And that's where 2 Corinthians 9, 7 comes in. Each one must give as he has decided in his own heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. You're not compelled to give beyond your ability, but you might want to. Be like the, the widow that Jesus observed when she gave all that she had to live on. That's what the Macedonian churches did when they gave out of their extreme poverty, even hurting themselves in giving. See, this means giving when it no longer makes worldly sense, when the numbers just don't add up. This means giving and not knowing after that how I'm going to take care of my needs. I mean, although this kind of giving has been repeatedly done in church history, now, in my lifetime, I've only met two people who've actually dared to do that, and I know that both of them were deeply enriched by God. Those who do count on verse 6. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. I know for many of us, for the majority, all of this sounds like strange language. You've thought, first, that your money was your own, and second, what you give if anything, is your business. And third, your money has very little to do with your faith. I hope you see that this is exactly what our culture teaches us and that the Scripture teaches us the very opposite. The Bible teaches us first that all wealth is God's and second, you are his manager and third, you can draw a wage from what he gives you, but fourth, you can use your money to invest in eternity. But what is the bounty that Paul speaks of in verse 6? Again, let me read verses 10 and 11. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You'll be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. In other words, we give to be personally enriched. Wow! Well, for one, God will increase the harvest of our righteousness. And then Paul goes on to say, we will be enriched in every way. Now, he doesn't specify exactly what he means, but in 1 Timothy 6, Paul even says that giving stores up a treasure for ourselves in heaven. 
But here in 2 Corinthians 9 verse 10, he also adds that God will multiply your seed for sowing. That is to say, he will multiply your ability to give. So this is amazing. The reason why some of us can't afford to give is because we haven't begun to give. It's as Proverbs 11:24 says, one gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. Some of you know the story of R.G. Letourneau. He was a man who invented some of the biggest earth-moving machines ever made, used for road building throughout the world. He always tithed, but finally came to realize that he had far too much, and he decided that he would turn matters around and give 90% and live on 10%. You know, someone asked him why, and this is what he said. He said, I shovel out the money, and God shovels it back, but God has a bigger shovel. So let me add one more thing to that. Verse 7 says that God loves a cheerful giver. Why is giving a matter of joy for us? Why is it that some people so love to give that in the case of the Macedonian Christians who were poor, they actually pleaded with Paul for the privilege of giving? Why is it that some people actually think that offering time is the best time of any worship time? Well, it's because they know that money is a chance to demonstrate their faith. And money is a chance to stand in line for the rich rewards of eternity. Thank you, Lord, for the gift of money. John, I can't believe we spent a whole week talking about money, but this is the last day. So I got to ask you, what stirs you up when it comes to talk about money and stewardship and the Bible and your experience in the pastoral ministries? Yeah, I mean, I think, first of all, that money is actually a spiritual matter, and it is fitting for believers who care about their faith to talk about an intelligent use of our money. But second, I do want to say, and here's a little confession. Over the years, I have received more nasty notes uh, from individuals when I've talked about money. I mean, I can talk about sex. I can talk about the roles of men and women. I mean, I, I, I can't tell you the amount of inflammatory things that I can talk about, and they receive none of the negative response as I have had over the years when I've talked about money. And yet, having said that, uh, ben, I just feel so passionately that if we leave the talk of money out, first of all, we're not being obedient to Jesus, who talked about it all the time. We don't help people with stewardship. We don't help them to direct the whole nature of their lives. Money and our spirituality go hand in hand. Can't ever separate them. Thanks so much, John, and thanks for a great series. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. April 28th to May 6th, 2019, we invite you to join Back to the Bible Canada on our 2019 Israel Experience with Dr. John Newfeld, Phil Calloway, and special worship and musical artist John Buller. Touch, see, and experience the journeys of Paul and David and walk where Jesus walked. This will be a unique, intimate experience of Israel like no other. But time is running short and the guest list is near full. So if you've been planning on visiting Israel and seeing so many of the sites of the Bible, register today by calling 1-800-663-2425 or visiting backtothebible.ca. And special note, 
We'll also be offering an optional and exclusive tour of Jordan immediately following the Israel experience accompanied by Dr. Neufeld. So call today and avoid any disappointment at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.